imagine you're in a small town you've never been to. You're inside a local thrift store. Bells jingle as you open the door. You walk past the rows of mothball-smelling clothes towards the back of the store. You walk past the dated electronics. You walk past the wicker home decor and silverware. And in the back of the store is the toy section. Everything is sun-bleached and dirty, like it was taken from a dead person's home. There's a sense of menace embedded within the nostalgia. The coziness feels lethal. This is the atmosphere captured by Derek McCormick's prose. Speaking to Derek, as you're about to find out, was an absolute joy. During this conversation, we break into the emotional center of his latest book, Castle Faggot. I found Derek to be so endearing. He's like a dandy carnival barker. Derek's all at once charming and outrageous, perverse and brilliant. I have the feeling you're going to love this one. And before we get to the episode, I just need a panhandle for a second. If you can, please consider supporting the show. There's a link in the bio of every episode where you can make a monthly donation to keep this thing going. Moving forward, I'd like to put out weekly episodes of Wake Island. Even if it's a dollar a month, it helps justify the time it takes to produce and edit one of these episodes. That said, I want to invite you to unplug from the stress and insanity of the outside world and enjoy the last episode in 2020 with Canada's King of Camp, the one and only Derek McCormick. I was on Michael Silverblatt's show once, and um, oh no, that, kidding! That's like li- listening to yours is the only compare. I was on with Dennis once. Um, oh wow! Listening to yours is like the only comparative I've come across, like in terms of smarts. You know? No kidding. Well, thank you. That's such a high compliment. I have to say. His show, uh, Michael Silverplatt's show, Bookworm, was definitely this huge inspiration for me. And I feel like people don't talk about him enough. He's such a great yeah. reader and interviewer. And I just love his like tone. You know, he yeah. it's so like ceremonial and serious. He's <laughs> such a great reader and interviewer. What was it like to be on his show? Well, it was great. I mean, I find his shows funny because he has that swoopy, serious gay voice. And, <laughs> you know, where and and the sentence, uh, the questions can take minutes, you know. And um, so it was a real performance sitting across from him. And um, I, I can't remember why I was in L.A. with Dennis. I don't I think we were about to embark on a book tour. But, um, uh, it, you know, it was good. To, he has known Dennis for so long from the Beyond Baroque. And um, he said something like, he said something like, oh, you and Dennis, to Dennis, said you and Derek have some kind of like, some kind of deep connection that's almost unspeakable. And um, and I, I was I was so deeply flattered by that. Although I've never mentioned this, the first time I've mentioned it since I did the show. Um but it was great. It was great watching him, and he's like a. It's like a real performance. And um, I never listened to the show. I don't know how I turned out. I, I can't stand my voice. <laughs> like talk talk about faggoty voices. Like, Jesus, I can't. No, I think I your voice sounds fine. But what do you think he meant when he said that you and Dennis have like this deep connection? Well, I took it that he meant that like I had stolen my. <laughs> I'd stolen from Dennis, like that. I had studied him so deeply. Uh, that I had absorbed all the Dennisisms I could. 
I, actually, that's a quite a, you know, that's sort of a stupid-ass answer because I don't think Michael Silverblatt says kind of flip things like that. I don't think um, so either. So obviously it was something that he meant to say. I wish I had asked him. You know, I didn't. I was too nervous uh, and shy to ask. What book were you touring? It must have been The Little House on the Bowery um, grab bag, which had my first two books included in it, Dark Rides and Wish Book. Um, and I think The Haunted Hillbilly had just come out from Soft Skull. And Dennis and I and my best friend Jason McBride and... Benjamin Wiseman and Martha Kinney, the poet, we um, met up in Los Angeles and drove to Seattle uh, and did readings along the way. Oh, wow. Um, it was a road trip. In San Francisco, we met up with Kevin Killian and Doty and Matthew Stadler in Seattle. And um, yeah, it was a big, um, <laughs> it, it was great. It was great to spend that much time in a car. Uh, with Dennis and with Benjamin and uh, um, but you know it was like 40 years ago I honestly can't remember when that would have been um, uh, a lifetime ago a lifetime ago well you know it's funny that actually that moment in publishing was a really big deal for me because I think when Little House and a Bowery came out which was it was an imprint of something else right of Akashic Akashic oh, yeah of Akashic and and Dennis yeah. I, I believe had some sort of part in running Little House in the Bowery. Yeah, yeah. I think that Johnny Temple at Akashic and Dennis um, sort of decided that he would have a boutique imprint. And uh, I think it, I think, I, it, I mean, they, they did a lot of books, I guess, until Dennis moved to France. And those books were so influential for me. I have to say, and I'm, and I'm not just saying this, but I remember when I was writing my book, I was reading Grab Bag at the time. And I remember being just so enamored by your use of language and how like uncluttered um. and unfussy it was and how clear it was. And I remember really trying to to mimic that style. It's very flattering because I really liked your book. And, and I, I agree with you that that was it was a magic time for me because I got published by Little House in the Bowery Akashic. And then I had The Haunted Hillbilly with Soft Skull and they were both going concerns at the time, I guess. They are still Akashic's big and Soft Skull has been reanimated recently. But you know, there were it, it, there were small houses and you talk to everyone and they there's in-house PR and you call them every night and it was very uh familial. You know, it was fun until I got my sales figures and then, you know, <laughs> realized that really no one had ever sold less in the history of those two companies, and then that was the end for me. No, that's not true. Dennis did one more in Little House in the Bowery. He did the show that smells. God bless him. <laughs> well, I never really think of book publishing as a thing that makes money, at least. Like, I don't even know what level you have to be at to where you're at a point where writing books is like a profitable thing. <sighs> Yeah, I wouldn't know that either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's almost like um, you write books as a calling card to something else, or you write them because you love doing it. Yeah, I'm just really lucky that I, I keep getting published because, um, you know, I came out of the gate strong with Dark Rides, and then I've been kind of like lagging a little bit more every book. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't, 
I don't think too much of it. I certainly don't expect checks or recognition or prizes or anything like that. I'm just, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to get the books out there. I'm so grateful. You know, I can't say how grateful I am. I'm, it's pitiful, really. Well, I think you're super prolific, too. I mean, I feel like you're a, a name that's just always in the, uh, in the mix of transgressive writers whenever they're mentioned. It seems like you've always got a book coming out or about to come out. Oh, that's nice. I always think of myself as like a fly just pissing you off by flying, you know, like, oh, fuck, there's Derek McCormick again. <laughs> How does he have another book out? I thought he was dead. He might be dead. I don't even know. Um, you know, it's it's very nice because I do. Yeah, I, I am prolific in a way, unless you count that my books are like 8000 words long. And then you have to wonder what took me so long. But, you know, every time, every time since my first book, I've sat down to write like a book of real standard hefty literary weight and um i always end up shorter than a new yorker article but i like that about your books i find that that kind of writing to me personally is very enjoyable like i like the way it looks on the page if, when you write the kind of sentences that you write in a way they're a little bit like how you write when you write for radio where it's very specific and direct and truncated there's like a real fluid nature to them. And I have to say, like, I really love the short book. Can't tell you how many big books I've picked up and been just intimidated by the by the sheer girth of it and been like, mm -hmm. oh, God, like, what if this isn't good? <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> well, no, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel less intimidated than just annoyed. I mean, you know, 90% of most books that come out is filler and uh i find it hard to read uh, mainstream writing without constantly editing editing it in my mind um you know because i i love slashing and burning my way through manuscripts and um and i i can't believe the time people take to set up like how a light gets turned on or how they get pick up dinner or just that boggles my mind i just can't <laughs> believe these people don't die of boredom writing their own books but I, you know, that's what makes them successful yeah, is that they're boring. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. But I have a question for you. I mean, like, do you think of my work as transgressive? Yeah, definitely. Especially this last book. Uh, your your latest book is called Castle Faggot, and mm. I think the title alone already <laughs> puts it into a, a transgressive territory. But yeah, I think so. I think you're your narratives stand outside of what most narratives are. There is something, I'd say, cartoonish and delirious about your work. And I think oh, nice. when you have work that functions that way, and one of the reasons why I even wanted to start this podcast is that they seem like an investigation of atmosphere of, or of a specific tone. And I think mm. there is a specific tone that runs throughout all of your work that I think is part of your aesthetic. And I'm really curious to know more about your aesthetic because it's very consistent and it's very specific. And to me, it seems to be very tied up with your childhood and maybe a sense mm. of nostalgia. And maybe this is the wrong word, but a sense of kitsch. So, oh, yeah. so before we get to it, tell me like, what yeah. is your aesthetic? Can you describe it for the listeners? Uh, I think of myself as like um, isolated, fussy, small town grandma. <laughs> um, 
I, you know, when I start to write books, I, I, I always, when I'm stuck, I always picture myself in my grandparents' living room, lying on their carpet in front of the TV where, and writing, which is what I did as a kid. And I, I always tried to write little books. Actually, they might have been longer than the books I publish now, but it was always my goal to staple something together, you know, in terms of a book. And, you know, t- you know that, that sounds sort of cute, but the, the, in my mind, by saying those words, what I'm invoking is um, s- somewhere really rural in northern Ontario and um, a kind of desperate place and really lonely. And my grandmother, who was you know, clearly my fashion inspiration and maybe like a huge force of my personality would have been doddering around in an Eva Gabor wig and smoking and drinking. And, um, uh, we got along perfectly great. I think she saw that I was like her. I mean, she would take me down to the Legion hall and teach me how to cheat at Euchre and she'd let me wear her earrings and high heels when I went. So, um, <laughs> This all, you know, so in my mind, so in my mind, I'm, I'm sounding nostalgic, but as in every, all of my nostalgia is tinged with um, a bit of terror and a horror, I guess horror maybe is more the word. Like I, I, the, the picture of me is horrific to me. So um, that's my aesthetic insofar as my childhood affected it. You know, I love that you talk about tone and atmosphere because that tone in that house at those moments is un I can't capture it. You know, I can't I'm I'm failing here to tell communicate to you what it was like. And I I also fail to do it in writing. Uh, I don't beat myself up about it because I, I think it's too complicated to get down. Well, I don't think um, it's something that's meant to get down. You know, you're never going to totally just recreate it and look at it and say, ha, it's done. It's over. You know, that story yeah. and that tone continues to evolve with you. But I'm curious to, like, hear more about Grandma's house. Like, where did this sense <laughs> of loneliness and horror come from? Uh, well, I think in part because I was such a little faggot and um, I, I, could ne- I never had the good sense to not be out about it. So I think my family was dealing with this creature um the horror was in part because of the way my grandparents lived they disliked each other my grandmother tried to murder my grandfather they lived in this big house in separate parts of the house the downstairs was closed off um it it for sure was um my my first and favorite haunted house and they were quite cut off from their families you know it was a town of 200 people and I would see this drunk walking downtown and passing out in front of the house. And after years, I was finally told that was my uncle, but I never met him. You know, the in a town of 200, the sisters and brothers didn't talk. And, uh, now, you know, I, I also have to say that I'm not, I'm, I don't totally buy that, that my entire writing career is a reaction to these childhood memories. Cause I, I think, I think my whole writing career has also been a, uh, I think a nice way to say it would be that I'm elaborating on those memories. I think that a more accurate way to be say that I'm producing the memories. I mean, I'm constantly uh, still manufacturing those moments. And I think that they've become detached from what I actually experienced. And I think that it's become more of a creative endeavor. Um, So that, you know, I love nostalgia, uh, but I have to keep remaking it or making it new. Uh, which I think is 
probably not what you're supposed to do with nostalgia. Um, all I know is that I love a lot of writers who say, I hate nostalgia. I loathe nostalgia. I can't stand nostalgia. Me, I fucking love it. But I, I have a hard time pinning down what I'm nostalgic for because I keep making more shit up. Well, I, th- I, th- <laughs> I think that's an interesting thing that you just brought up because when I read your work, and I follow you on Instagram, which I think functions a little bit as a mood board for your aesthetic and this sense of nostalgia. I think the thing that maybe you're gravitating towards, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be like a sense of coziness and a sense of camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean camp in like the real way, not in like the way it's portrayed on the Met Gala in a way where it's like not intentional. And it seems yeah. that your grandmother was this like camp figure. I am, I'm, I don't know what yes. she looks like, but I'm assuming she was like a woman with big hair and had a lot of shit around the house and <laughs> told great drunk stories and seemed to be like a, like a guiding light for you. Yeah. I mean, she was like a Kuchar character, you know, um, she, she was a bit frightening. Um, and and I agree. I agree with the camp, and I I agree with the dismissal of the Met Gala. I mean, that period around the Met Gala was for many thinking people so fucking frustrating because of the level of stupidity of of talk about what camp was and how it related to fashion. Um, <laughs> and it seemed like nobody got it right. No one fucking got it right, and everyone talked as if they were getting it right, or if they talked to the right person, they would get it right. And it was just. Um, and you know, I, can you get it right? I don't know. That's part of it, right? I mean, you have to fail, and then you have exactly. to laugh at your failure to do it, and then you have to be embarrassed and ashamed. And I mean, well, there's a I lot more. I think, in that sense, though, you have to not know that you failed. I think you have to think that you actually did something really great. It's like that movie, uh, Showgirls. You know, everybody right. discusses if it's camp or not, and I, I think it is camp because I think. Uh, when Verhoeven made it, he didn't m- try to make this ridiculous, kind of wild, crazy movie. I think he really thought of doing something serious, and the way his ideas didn't exactly translate to actors and the screen in the way that I think he intended is what makes camp. See, for me, camp is, I, I agree on some points, and I'm slightly different because I think that you have to set out to do something you really love, and when it starts to fail, you have to bottle it up um, and, and <laughs> let it rot you from the inside. The knowledge that you're doing what you think is great and you're failing at the same time, that would be, for me, camp. Um, oh, my God, now I sound like one of the commentators at the Met. Um, I, I want to say about my Nana... Um, I should differentiate. My grandma, my mom's mom was just a lovely, lovely person. My dad's mom was a very, very peculiar person. And and, and that's who I'm talking about here. Um, you know, I go for coziness, but it has to be a lethal coziness. You know, it has yes. to be a poisonous coziness. Um, it, it has to be... Um, you know, I love. You know, I wrote a book about Christmas, and I I love Christmas, but I only love Christmas if it includes this kind of um, fatal sadness at its core and loneliness. So, if I'm going to talk about my writing, I think a couple things run through it. One is, um, yeah, there's camp. There's um, 
a kind of fatal failure to do what it wants, and there's a kind of cruelty. I think there's always cruelty in my books. I think, uh, you know, I think there's cruelty to myself, and hopefully there's cruelty to the readers. I always wonder about transgressive because I don't really write about gritty things. You know, I don't... Well, you did write a book that was partially about shit and dead Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a dead fag who's still shitting. So, like, I'm a medical marvel, you know? Either um, you, are, just... you are transgressive. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just like the worst Christmas ornament in the world. I'm dead and I keep on shitting. <laughs> but where do you and think... And saying Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would make it for a great... Uh stocking stuffer but <laughs> where do you think this like um this like fixation on childhood iconography started from like did your grandmother collect tchotchkes was did you live in a house that was filled with objects i there's like a strong sense of um fetishism in your work and i don't mean that in yeah. an s&m way but in just you seem like somebody that collects a lot that hoards yeah. that has a massive collection of things I would love to see, but I don't actually know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do collect things. I'm not uh, an obsessive collector. I don't need the best thing, and I don't need all the things. Um, but for sure, I'm attached to the object. I, you know, I think that has to do with um, my mom. Uh, was like a deeply materialistic person, and. Um, could not save money to save her life. And my parents, when I was in grade five or six, they bought an old um, five and dime store in a town outside of Peterborough, Ontario called Lakefield. And the, the, the store had been open since about 1910 and had not changed fixtures. And when they bought the store, we went through it. We went into the basement, was all wartime pottery and ceramics. And in the two levels above um, were toys that had been sitting there since 1940 and 1950. And um, that had a huge, made a huge impression on me. And in it, so so much so that I took a lot of them home and opened a store in the garage of my parents' suburban house, which was called Nespa. Wow. <laughs> uh, we could only open for minutes at a time because the neighborhood bullies would come in and punch me out. Um, <laughs> so I just was really fastidious working on displays off hours and then I'd open the door for a few seconds and then I'd close it. Um, so I had a certain mercantile sensibility. Uh, you know, I was raised in retail. I was raised in this environment where you'd go to trade shows to buy Christmas and Halloween in February and... Um, and my mom would bring it home. So our, our house had, you know, basically retail grade decorations. Um, and I loved it. I love it. And I, I always loved working in retail too, because I feel like it's like, I feel like it's the most satisfying thing a fag can do. And I, you know, <laughs> when I, when I see really faggoty clerks like at Tiffany or somewhere, I have such deep admiration for them. Um, you know, the pinky in the air and the snootiness. I've never achieved that. I'm too slovenly and I'm not handsome enough. But I, I do think that I, I do think of, you know, department store floor walkers and window dressers and um, flower arrangers. I mean, th these are my gay heroes. And, um, uh, you know, just totally dispensable people 
I don't know if they're dispensable. Oh, I think so. I mean, if they weren't, I don't know if I'd like them. I, okay, let me say superfluous. Uh, frou-frou. I'll say, I'll say they're frou-frou. Okay. Um, they have a purpose for sure, but in the end, it's so flighty and ephemeral. Um, yeah, but I think that's kind of the sublime magic of them. It makes me think about, I live in New York City, and I'd always wanted to shop at Barney's. But I never yeah. had enough money. And it yep. wasn't until a few years ago that I finally had enough money that I was like, I'm going to go to Barney's and actually buy something for myself. And I remember coming across one of these people that you're talking about. And in the past, yep. they always intimidated me, mainly because I could t- they could tell that I didn't have any money and I had no, <laughs> no, no place yeah. being in the store that they were at. Yeah. But having the money to throw around that day and, and interacting with somebody like that, that really had a, who could actually find me a pair of Tom Ford sunglasses that were like made for my face. Prior to that moment, every pair of sunglasses I ever had just made me look weird or they accentuated how big my forehead is, or they made me look like just like a weirdo. And it was like, oh, this is perfect. Thank you. And I don't know. I I, I have to say that this, because this was so recent, I've been just so sad that uh, I've only had enough money to shop at Barney's for like two years, and then it shut down. <laughs> and then it shut down. You know, I'm so glad you did that. I'm. Pr- I don't know you that well, but I'm proud of you for doing that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> You know, I've had that. I my mom in, indulged me. You know, so I'm a so I'm a young gay guy living in rural Ontario. My parents own a dime store in a small town, but you know, they had my mom had aspirations mainly to make to make money and to show it off, and I inherited that. You know, and I loved fashion at a very young age. So, um, I remember in eighty. 80- Two or 83, my parents took me and my sister to New York, and I insisted on going to the Come de Garçon store, which had just opened in Soho. I ended up not getting anything, uh, but I bought a Jean-Paul Gaultier brooch at IF. And, you know, I can measure my life in these great stores I went into, um, Sharavari, IF, uh, in Toronto. There's some lesser-known ones. And Barney's is one of them later. And um, it's odd. I'm so self-conscious about almost everything in life. You know, um, but I've never been afraid to go into those stores and no matter how disheveled or poor I look. And I guess I always thought that maybe like I was the ghost of faggotry past for those clerks, you know, like I was I I was either showing them what they used to be or what they're going to turn into be. So I I always (laughs) hoped that (laughs) I always hoped that I was inspiring some fear and disgust in them. And um I never. I, I loved doing that, and I've had such good times at Barney's. You know, I don't think I've ever bought anything Barney's, but I was there one Christmas, and I I saw Li- I passed Liza Minnelli on the escalator. Oh wow, that's like what a jackpot! Oh, I know. I couldn't. I couldn't. I could. I couldn't. I still can't listen to me. Um, I can't believe it. That's like the unreal. last time I was there, I ran, I ran into John Waters who was shopping, and um, what. I, you know, and it's weird with John Waters because he had blurbed grab bag. Uh, Dennis got him to blurb grab bag. And we have lots of friends in common. And 
um, when I got sick with cancer, they had a fundraiser up here in Toronto for me, and he sent up these amazing, like, first edition, you know, like, female trouble poster and Pink Flamingo to auction to raise money for me. Oh, so we were so Barney's, cool. and I, I went up, and I said, you know, I'm Derek McCormick. You blurred my book, and um, he couldn't have been less interested. I mean, he was just, like, so annoyed that I had bothered him. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, I thought we're in Barney's and I'm bothering John. Wall. I mean, like, this is my story of high end shopping, bothering people. And it's kind of cool uh, that he was shitty. You know what I mean? Like yeah. everybody, you, you, you go into Barney's with a shitty attitude. That's like part <laughs> of the, the, uh, the point of entering into that experience. <laughs> it was the full experience with celebrity and I didn't buy anything. It, I think that he was shopping for a suit for like an important birthday. So I totally understood afterwards that, you know, this might be something that he was doing that he thought would be pleasurable. That was maybe not as pleasurable as he wanted it to be. Um, but I don't mind when people are shitty to me because it always makes a good story too. Absolutely. It's funny about uh, John Waters. Um, my mom once called me, this was like 10 years ago or something. Anyway, she, she calls me, my mother's Polish and she was driving home from work and I guess she was listening to NPR and she's like, Polly, Polly, there's this man on the radio and he reminds me so much of you. And I was oh. like, and I was like, oh God, like what, you know, awful person is this going to be, you know, like what weird could yeah. it, who could it be on NPR? And she's like, I don't know who he is, but his name is John Waters. And I was like, Oh, oh mom, thank you. That's, that's, that's like a perfect, high compliment. That is a high compliment from mom. To top it off, a year later, um, he was coming to a theater in Boston where I was living at the time, and I dyed my hair black. And I grew oh. a pencil line mustache, and I dyed that black too. And I actually have a photo with him, uh, with the mustache. And for Christmas that year, I went to the mall, and I don't know what that you call it, but there's these like they basically make like it's an American flag at the top with like an eagle, and it's cloth, <laughs> and the rest of it's a calendar, and you can like yeah. superimpose an image over the uh, the American flag part. Uh, and I and I, <laughs> I got my my photo with John Waters superimposed over the American flag, with the uh, Ameri uh, with the calendar thing, and I gave it to my mom for Christmas, and oh. she and she was so like um, kind of mystified by it. She was like, "Oh, thank you." Like I don't think she totally because she doesn't know his films. She just knows him from that interview. And the right. best part is, I come back home like whatever a few months later and she had hung it up in the bathroom oh the bathroom isn't that <laughs> I've perfect never seen, yeah i bet she loves it i bet she still has it and it's grown it's grown in her estimation <laughs> that that seems like a very like this is the heart of my son that i might not want to look at all the time but uh <laughs> that's it you distilled something for her i think so um, i don't even know if she's aware of it but i like that she saw well, it was not sure what to make of it and decided this belongs in a bathroom. This is why I salute America is you can go to the mall and make that for your mom at Christmas. I've never heard <laughs> of such a thing. <laughs> well, I'm curious. Do you think there's a difference between American and Canadian kitsch? Oh yeah. Um, well, I'm in love with American kitsch. So 
um, you know, in, in love with everything Barnum up, Midways, World Fairs, Carnival Prizes, um, Halloween. I mean, you know, Canada has a strong tradition of Halloween and of Christmas, but we don't approach anything like the mania that Americans do uh, become or get at that time of year. Um, <laughs> like our, tra- our traditions are filtered through, through the, through England, you know? So right, when we're right. growing, when we're growing up, uh, when I was growing up, I think it's much less so now, but you were, you know, you watched the queen's Christmas address. You were very aware of Royal weddings. It's on all our currency. And um, there's a certain tradition that comes from Britain about holidays, which is, um, you know, they're not so hot on Halloween, but Christmas has, you know, a Tom Smith crackers and um, Dickens, which Americans bought all of that wholesale and then they added their own shit. And then, you know, America, it's it's just such a like a big mon- Frankenstein monster, your holidays. And um, in terms of producing crap for holidays, uh, the Americans in the 20th century were the greatest. I mean, now it's all made in villages in China, but... Yeah, when I think of the Denison and the Beisel factory, and um, um, it, it yours is like, and and I know Americans adopted English traditions, but they just mongrelized everything, and they did it ten times louder than it should have been. And <laughs> um, so I grew up in Canada when Canada was. You got a lot of BBC shows. There was still great, you know, the apron strings were strong to to um great britain and um you were a little free of all that you were allowed to pick and choose and then and then also you know canada is a very centralized country we had two major department stores that served every major city and every little village and in the states you had regions you had regional department stores you had mail order empires and johnson smith novelties and so things just got weird you know they got weird in a good way uh, yeah they they got weird and you know the south was different from the midwest was different from california there's there's a real uniformity in canada to the you know as early as the 19th century even the 18th century a real uniformity to what people bought what people saw what people were exposed to what you know cbc is a centralized entertainment and news network um so yeah we're much more buttoned down much more buttoned down and we have our own you know small heroes canadian cultural heroes that never make a dent in the consciousness of america but well but i mean some of them get quite big here like ryan gosling and pamela anderson like you oh know, yeah you guys got some big ones michael myers we do and they all move to malibu yeah. <laughs> and then we have our stars that um you know we have our we have our own like all small countries in the shadow of the states we have our own um star system of people that you'll never hear of and then for someone like me an anglophone when i go to quebec there's a whole star system involving film tv soundtracks of people that i've never heard of and will never hear of and um uh, i i like that too you know i like that i can go to quebec and it's really another country and they you know dislike anglophone canadians so intensely that um it's just like a combat being there (laughs) (laughs) What is that uh, House Fixer Upper show with the two brothers? Do you know what I'm talking oh. about? 
I just saw an ad for that because I'm watching all these Hallmark Christmas movies. Are those brothers lovers, do you think? What's happening with those guys? I don't, I don't know. They've <laughs> always like kind of befuddled me, and my girlfriend watches them pretty regularly, so I've had them on in the ba- in the background for like hours, <gasps> and uh, I ran into one of them in Montreal, and it oh. just and, and 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 you know like meeting John Waters in. And Barney's, that was almost as good. I don't even know if they're Canadian, but it was the perfect celebrity sighting. <laughs> Did you Montreal. speak to them? Did Not you tell them all. how much they meant to you? Oh, come no, on. No, I was, I, was, I was so like, I don't know why. I was just like, the only thing I can compare it to is once in New York, I was walking down a street and it looked like there were photographers taking photos of me. And I was just yeah. kind of like, you know, like, is this like a performance project or something? You know, like I was like, cause I was on the sidewalk, but there was a guy off the sidewalk, like walking on the road with like his hands in his pocket. And he had like these denim jeans that were like a bit dazzled and had dragon <gasps> patterns down a leg and like a white jacket and a cowboy hat. And I was like, oh, they must be taking a photo of that guy. And like I walked up a little bit, like a little faster, and I turned around, and it was Mickey Rourke. Oh, I was guessing Bon Jovi. Mickey Rourke is better, though, right? Oh, speaking of like kitsch and like camp, <laughs> I feel like. Do you follow him on a uh, social media? No. You should, because he has just become this total. Like he has like an implanted wig, and he has like a crazy amount of plastic surgery. And his Instagram is super homoerotic. Like he just posts photos of like Russian bodybuilders and Russian like um, like MMA fighters and, and boxers. And it's all kind of like and he'll act like he can speak Russian and like he knows them. And then there's shots of like him at a gym with like a really buff guy with no shirt on. It's very like it's super funny. And it, it, it to me almost um it feels just totally camp because I don't think he thinks I think he thinks he's like this super tough guy like he's a boxer and he has no idea why why does I don't know it's just like Russian culture brings that out in people that like weird masculinity that seems so powdered and preposterous um I think of Steven Seagal is that his name yeah yeah um and Gerard Depardieu moving moving to Russia yeah um no, my, my Instagram, I follow writers I like, and then I follow, like, um, antique dealers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I've been really good this year not buying stuff because I'm so poor. But in general, I have no check on my appetites when it comes to buying crap online. So, Do you have a good story about acquiring a certain object? I really don't. Um, really? You know, I... I don't think I've ever acquired anything with any backstory. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I, I guess I grew up going to like estate sales and then I, I was an early adopter of eBay and I don't know who these people were, or how they got the things they got. But in the early days of eBay, the Wild West days, you could buy anything, you know, and you'd oh, send God. a money order or cash. And, and, um, there's great shit on there. It was amazing. Um, but no, I think my only storied things I own are um, the clothes that I, you know, like I, I, the clothes that I indulged in. Like I, I went to my high school graduation in 
Goche and Yoji, and um, nice. I kept all that shit. What did it look like? Uh, uh, it was actually pretty. It was like a, a huge billowing sky blue shirt and checked pants. Um, a year later, I got this Goche jean jacket, one of the corset from the corset collection, which I still have, which is in this hideous orange color, which I can see right now. Um, and fortunately, I, when I was young and skinny, I bought everything oversized, as was the style. So now that I'm actually oversized, it still fits me most of Not that I <laughs> ever go out in it. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm so totally off track now. Get me back on track here, Paul. Oh, no. We're just talking about acquiring cool shit. And, uh, I, you know, it's funny because I, I, I'm currently unemployed, so I'm not buying anything. But the few things that I do buy, I am also doing the same thing where I'm like, Let's buy an extra large because you're not getting any skinnier at this rate right now. And I also remember the Wild West of uh, eBay. And it's I always associate it with um, I used to take Ambien a lot. And I remember getting drunk, taking an Ambien and buying shit off eBay and like these things coming to my house later and being like, what the fuck? Is this like? Isn't that the greatest? Kind of. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> I still take a lot of Ambien, and I still have things delivered, and I have enormous remorse and regret, and but that only lasts <laughs> for a day or two, and then I'm so grateful to have this piece of junk that I don't remember buying in my. I don't know. Um, what's I rarely the most, regret. What's the most like remorseful thing you've bought in, on Ambien? <laughs> Oh, a Comme des Garcons coat. Um, was that it was more money. It was expensive. It, I just loved it, and um, it was from a collection I loved. And um, I never really—I looked at it for days and days, and then two weeks later, it came in the mail. And um, um, and also, you know, the other thing I like to do when I buy things on Ambien is um, to love them for a day or two and then discard them. I feel like the discarding is. Um, part of the pleasure process so i never wore that coat out um it's still in my closet and um i guess that's like my <laughs> imitation of wealth or waste or something like that um uh, it, it also seems to be part of like the aesthetic of these things that you post on your instagram is that there's something very sad about them to me and i'm not just sure if i'm just projecting that but it's like these they seem like objects that come from some bin at the back of a thrift store in a small town that you just assume <laughs> came from a dead person's home and there's something so like uniquely sad about that so maybe that's like part of the the fun yeah, I mean, I'm sad, and I'm, like, live in a basement <laughs> apartment. So basically they went from some dead person's house to some crypt, crypt slash furnace room. And, um, yeah, it's interesting with things. I'm going to be honest. I collect things, and I have a lot of great things. Uh, I'm, I mean, recently I had a friend who's a carnival collector who saw my carnival knockdown doll collection and couldn't believe I had them. Um and I rarely think about them. They become so much part of my life in the background. And also, to be honest, I, I have a very, you know, I've, I've realized I'm, you know, 51. And I finally realized that when I'm working on a book, I will buy anything, any object or book that I think might give me an idea or, or that I think will give me something I can steal. Oh, or absolutely. That I think will, 
will add atmosphere to my apartment, which is where I write. So, you know, when I was writing The Well-Dressed, I always loved Margiela. And when I was writing The Well-Dressed Rune, I went fucking crazy buying Margiela stuff. And new stuff or just like old uh, secondhand stuff? Uh, secondhand stuff mostly, but uh, also deep discount. You know, I would go when I was in New York at sales season, I would, you know, be there for the bookstore I work at. And, you know, if there's a chandelier, chandelier necklace, 80% off, I would get it. Or if someone I knew was in Antwerp for the warehouse sales, I would say, get me that ponytail key ring or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all preposterous considering how poor I am. But in the moment of writing or in the years it takes me to write, I can excuse anything. And the minute I started working back again on Castle Faggot, I forgot about Margiela. I haven't forgotten it, but I noticed the other day that, you know, there's this beautiful Margiela chapbook published by Dashwood Books uh, of, of, of one of his early collections. And, you know, I realized it was out of print and I couldn't afford what people were charging now. And I, in five years ago, I would have been so on top of that, but my focus has shifted. My focus shifted to like Count Chocula, um, uh, haunted, haunted castle attractions, um, or, you know, early magic shows that used to castles. And, um, so I started to accumulate masses of magic books and tricks, which is always, again, that's something I loved in my childhood was magic. I used to do a little magic act with my sister. And, um, so again, that's, you know, when I mentioned my childhood, I'm always mining my childhood and I'm always updating and embellishing my childhood. So, you know, there's a dual action. So it's, again, it's a nostalgia that's, um, also gilded. It's a bit fake. Um, and now I'm, well, I say I'm working on another book, you know, by working, I mean, I've put in 10 hours this calendar year, but, um, it's set back in the world of the grand old Opry, which I missed in the fifties. And, um, the mailman's been bringing, um, you know, mini pearl hats and, um, Roy Acuff paper fans and stuff from the Jim Reeves museum and Furlan Husky's wings of a dove museum. This is like stuff that's definitely coming from a dead person's house. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and you know, I actually love buying Opry and hillbilly stuff because, um, you know, the audience in the days who would go to Nashville, who would buy an Ernest Tubb celluloid belt, they they were not moneyed people. And these were not did not become parts of collections or were donated to libraries. And so they were kind of junk then and they kind of end up as junk now. They're, they're not pricey. Oh, my God. Have you been to Pigeon Forge in Dollywood? I've been to Pigeon Forge once, but I didn't go to Dollywood, I hate to say. I... I can't explain why I didn't. It was such a, it was such a grave mistake. But didn't you find uh, Pigeon Forge to be like um, <laughs> almost heaven. like heaven. yeah the, the concentration of all <laughs> all your aesthetics and interests in like one town? Yeah, <laughs> I mean I had experienced. You're absolutely right, but I'd experienced that before. Like I live an hour and a half away from Niagara Falls, and the the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever been to it. Is just one wax. When I was a kid, it was one wax museum after another. The Wax Museum of Criminals, the Wax Museum of Horror, the Wax Museum of Oddities. Um, that was something that, and also Lake George, New York, in upstate New York, had an alien museum of House of Frankenstein, a horror wax museum. Um, so yeah, Pigeon Forge, but Pigeon Forge was in a way the beginning of a lot of that. And it's, you know, Mecca in a way. Um, 
Although, you know, I made several trips to Nashville when the town was full of that shit. You know, the Randy Travis gift shop, the Hank Williams Jr. Museum, the Barbara Mandrell Country Museum, where you could see the crutches she used after yeah, a car yeah. accident. Uh, that's gone. That got wiped out. But the first few times I was there, you know, that was the heart of it. That was the heart of, of Nashville. And um, I loved that. I love that. I still have. I still have, I bought these surprise bags from the George Jones Museum, you know, like a dollar and you don't know what's in them. I still have four of them. I've never opened them. I've never peeked in them. That's like, that's kind of exciting. It's kind of my retirement plan. I plan on (laughs) selling them for $5 each and then that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I got for old age. By the way, um, you know, you're talking about Niagara Falls. Did you ever go to Lilydale? No. So by Niagara Falls on the New York side, I don't, it's, it's relatively close to that area, but there's a spiritualist community called Lilydale and it's this, I think it's the oldest Victorian neighborhood in America. And it's just, it's this gated community. And once you go in, it's like untouched Victorian houses and gift shops and it's a spiritualist community. So everybody that lives in these houses is a psychic or a medium. And okay, I think you would fucking like love it there. Uh, not to say that I think you're into like psychics and stuff, but just the um, the vibe and atmosphere of that town. Like if you like wizards and fairies and cats, there's like <laughs> just hordes of those kind of people there and it's so intensely trippy so is that where the sisters the famous sisters are from okay okay they they're from there and this is where the whole thing started i didn't realize it was so close i mean the closest i've gotten to that is salem massachusetts at halloween which i loved um lily dale is much more serious though yeah. I mean, I'm all for that. I, you know, that's the beauty of America is you have these fucking, I mean, I know that's a community, but let's call it what it is, which is a theme park. And oh, it's um, totally a theme park. <laughs> and, um, you guys have theme parks everywhere, you know, like in every corner, there's like a Flintstone village or a, a fairy tale, a fairy tale uh, town, or it's just wonderful. I, I guess that's another thing my parents did for me is, I've never driven across Canada, but I've been to like 40 states and we stopped at every roadside attraction when I was a kid. And, um, um, and because, uh, I was indulged and I spoiled, I guess is the way to say it. You know, I would get to buy a piece of crap from everyone. And, um, yeah, I have such fond memories of that. And I love crap. I just, uh, <laughs> it's the most abide. It's one of the most abiding loves of my life is garbage (laughs) do you have a most memorable roadshow experience or location oh um you know one is a flintstone village um where i got to you know where you got to get in the cars and use your feet to i mean you couldn't make your feet spin like a whirly gig like they did in the flintstones but i would have to say i know this is sort of an obvious answer but alcatraz because when i went to alcatraz i must have been early teens And there was a definite erotic charge attached to it, you know? So there was, like, we were in San Francisco. uh, Then you go to this prison, and then everyone was gasping at how horrible it must have been to live there. And I was like, no, it's been awful. I mean, it must have been great and awful. I mean, the fucking must have been great. I don't know. (laughs) The... (laughs) 
I don't know if it was, I don't know where people fucked or how they did it, but I just sensed these men cooped up in this, you know, this magical place. Um, because uh, I, I know they tried very hard to make it seem horrific, and I'm sure other people were terrified, but I, I was not terrified. I, th- I thought it was a pal. <laughs> I thought it was a palace, you know. I thought it was a. I thought I thought it was like going to the Madonna Inn or something for your honeymoon. It was. This seemed fun. I, I haven't been there, but it, I I feel like I have a memory of there being people that escaped from there, and they had like made masks and guns out of soap. Oh, yeah, isn't that the hottest thing? They left these like body doubles in yeah, their bed, and then yeah. they, most of them got eaten by sharks, which I also found really erotic as a kid. Like, totally. Um, I remember seeing the Sword in the Stone by Disney, and the kid gets turned into a fish, and the wizard almost eats him. And you know, if I could have. If I could have jizzed, I would have jizzed. <laughs> I read that. Did you ever go to the Enchanted Forest in Oregon? Oh, my God. Okay. I've never been, but I'll tell you, I have both books about it, and I have the vinyl recording of all the music from the attractions. No shit. Oh, my yeah, God. You have to the, go. Um, it sounds like the greatest. The greatest. Tell me, tell me, tell me how great it is. It's it's pretty great. I mean, I don't have as much uh, experience as you with going to these places, but I went, I don't know, like two, three years ago, not really knowing what it was. And it's it's basically like this amusement park. It's very hippie. It's very obviously made in like the 70s. It's got a mm-hmm. very druggy vibe, but it's like, I don't think they're aware of it. Like there's big giant mushrooms everywhere and it, it, it fits your aesthetic to the T and it, it, it intentionally is not updated. It's very like, there's a really cool like haunted house and like the people in there are like, you know, they're dressed up and there's animatronics and it's, it's really cool. I'll, I'll send you some photos. I took some pictures. I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. Like, I don't know if you smoke pot at all, but it's like the perfect place to go and like get stoned and just bug out. I don't smoke pot ever since my cancer. I'm just a pill head. Like I, I get a lot of pharmaceuticals from that, you know, um, legit and I abuse them and then withdraw and abuse them. Um, (laughs) but I would love to go. Um, but Paul, tell me you travel so much. Like what, what do you, how do you do it? How do you, do you drive? Do you, do you have a job that takes you or are you just like, you love the road? I mean, I think uh, my, my social media might make it look like I travel more than I do. But like, for example, I lost my job in August and, oh, sorry. you know, once summer hit, I was just like the possibility of me getting another job was I was still applying, but it seemed pretty slim. I had was supposed to go on two vacations that never happened. Uh, it's kind of funny. I was supposed to go to Italy then Italy got, you know, locked down. Yeah. Then that plan changed to Mexico. Then that we weren't allowed to leave the country. So then that got demoted down to Utah. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 <laughs> Which was like fine. Work. But uh, in the middle of the summer, I just kind of took off one day. I was like, you know what? I'm going to get on like a, on a bus and I'm just going to leave. And I'm just going to try to like travel through the U.S., as cheaply as possible. And the crazy part was during the summer, and it might still be this way, you could buy a ticket. Like I flew from Kansas to LA for like $30. 
<laughs> and then I've, you know, so I started just flying around and it, each time I flew, it was only like 30 bucks. And um. I used this website called uh, Couchsurfer. And this is kind of funny. And this relates to your, to your book is like my, the first place I went to was in, in, uh, in Kansas city. And I'd never done anything like this before. <laughs> and I was kind of like, what is this going to be like? Is this, I don't, you know, like what kind of situation am I going to? And of course, you know, when I get there, the guy seems a little, I don't know, a little saucy. He's got like very like ambiguous sexuality, but he ended up being really cool. He was Christian. Mm-hmm. His father was like a pastor. So he had like a lot of like, like he seemed like a preacher's son to put right. it bluntly. And the funny thing is like, Overall, it was ended up being really cool. It was super interesting just to hear about all of that. But I remember he had a box of Lucky Charms, which is an American cereal with little fucking marshmallows in it. And we were drinking, and I was like, man, I'm sorry, but can I actually eat some of your Lucky Charms? I haven't had it since I was a little kid. And I just remember pouring the milk into the into the cereal and just that taste blowing my mind and just like really taking me back to my childhood as a very, you know, marshmallow cereal has like this undeniable taste. That's like both chalky and sweet. And it does something like crazy to the milk. Uh, So I'm curious, like because children's cereal was such a big part of castle faggot, when was the Mm -hmm. last time you tried marshmallowy children's cereal like Count Chocula or Frankenberry or Boo Berry, uh, if I'm getting those names right. Last night. Um, <laughs> last night, I took some Ambien and I ate about a half a box of Count Chocula with no milk. I just stuck my hand in and shoved it in my face. Um, <laughs> I stocked up at Halloween and also people see it at stores at Halloween and they say, oh, I bought you a box of Count Chocula and I'm always grateful, you know, if I can stockpile it. Um I I had Count Chocula as, when I was a kid, I saw the commercials and I, I loved the thought of Count Chocula. I loved uh, the thought of the toys of Count Chocula. My, I was never allowed to eat it. I had it once, I think, and I was quite disappointed as a kid. I realized later that um, uh, Frankenberry is really the one I love. Um, Why? But, uh, uh, well, it just has that natural berry flavor that's so refreshing. <laughs> uh, I don't know. No, it's, I don't know what, what it is about the chocolate in Count Chocula. It's like eating a chocolate scented marker, you know, it's just terrible. Whereas yeah, it has a weird it, taste. There's something about the Frankenberry that, um, I just, I love fake berry flavors. Um, but you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to have corn pops as a kid. And I was occasionally allowed to have Fruit Loops. In fact, every Christmas when my mom was alive, she would give me this family-sized box of Fruit Loops, which, when you think about it, is just terrifying. You know that <laughs> I'm like this aging <laughs> faggot son opening a box of family-sized Fruit Loops for my mother, <laughs> uh, and I'm like, "Mom, I love it. Thank you." And she's like, "I know you love it. Jesus Christ, God, I hope I go soon. Take me." <laughs> Uh, so, but no, I, I, and I do remember my mom letting me mail away box tops to get a toy. I don't remember what cereal it was for. 
um, I know those stories are always supposed to end. Oh, and then I got it and it was a piece of crap and it disappointed me, but crap never disappointed me. You know, I, I didn't, I had very low expectations of life. So the crap they mailed back seemed perfect to me. (laughs) (laughs) Do, Do toys still come in cereal? Yeah, I think so. Um, I have an, uh, I have an eight year old nephew who uh, I actually dedicated the book to him. Um, Jack and, um, I cruise Toys R Us and I cruise the cereal aisles with him. And, um, there's, de- there's definitely still stuff he wants in there and stuff I want and stuff I'm forbidden from buying for him. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I always love toys and I always love mail aways and novelties and gags and, oh, this kid. I mean, I love this kid to the end. I love him more than anything. And I also love that I get to play with this stuff again and that I get to buy it for him and spoil him. And, um, that's such a blessing. I mean, not that I wouldn't, I mean, I, you know, like I have no shame in buying this shit for myself, but it's fun that he thinks it's fun. And, you know, I have like a collection of fake shit here and he's just like, can't believe that's the greatest thing. I mean, it makes me by far the greatest uncle in the history of uncles that I have a bookshelf full of fake turds. <laughs> so to tie this into your latest book, Castle Faggot, tell mm-hmm. me how did this fixation or interest in these serial characters turn into a book and maybe also tell the audience what this like a loose premise of what this book is about. Yeah, for sure. So Castle Faggot is, um, it, it, it it's, I call it a novel. I don't know what it is. It's, it has four parts. Um, the first part is a map of, of a theme park called faggot land. The second part is a souvenir photo book of faggot land. Um, mostly with photos of castle faggot, which is the dark ride, in the theme park it's the haunted castle it's the premier attraction like cinderella's castle is for you know who or sleeping beauty's cassie castle um the third part is instructions for uh, a castle faggot dollhouse which you can either buy at the castle faggot gift shop or you can send away for um when you buy count chocolate cereal which is a chocolate cereal chocolate marshmallow marbit cereal as you said the fourth part is a television special that uh i really based on the rankin bass specials of my childhood um rudolph the red-nosed reindeer being the most famous my favorite being here comes peter cottontail um so it's a novelization it's it's like this show aired and then someone wrote a novella for people who missed the show or who loved it so much, they had to read about it at night. Um, and where did it come from? Um, it, it, it came from, um, my love of those Rankin Bass specials. It came from my love of theme parks, especially Disney. Um, and it came also from my fascination with, um, you know, I've said this before. I hope uh, I, I always think of my I don't think of myself as writing fiction so much. I think of myself as writing objects. Um, hmm. I love objects and I collect them and I'm not artistic. So I write them. So um, Wish Book, my second book, was um, in my mind uh, a mail order catalog. Um, the Haunted Hillbilly was an EC horror comic. Um, 
the show that smells was quite explicitly a lost Todd Browning film, a la freaks, um, starring quite explicitly Lon Chaney. Um, the well-dressed wound was, um, a play, the kind of play that Barnum staged at his American museum on Broadway. Um, uh, in the form of a seance, a play in the form of a seance starring um, Abraham Lincoln and Martin Margiela, um, who plays the devil. And then for all of Castle Faggot, it's for me, service literature. It's, it's in my head. I didn't, you know, I don't play act this, but the, the, the spark in my brain is that, okay, Faggotland needs me to write a brochure. I have to write a brochure. Faggotland needs me to write text for their photo book. I'll, write it um you know i think that the i think that there are two questions that you would have to ask of me like why the fuck would you do that and why the fuck would you do that and i'll (laughs) try and answer those in order um i think that you know i'm not i'm a writer but i don't love literature so much um i have like a real love no i'll say hate hate relationship with literature and i have a real love love relationship with um brochures instructions recipe books manuals the sides of cereal boxes um collectibles premiums so my dream has always been to write a book that's as good as um you know a giveaway desk calendar or the premium in a cereal box um and I think that that's simultaneously a way for me to escape the literary world, um, which I don't love. The problem for me is that I want to be loved by it. So I will write these books that, you know, spurn every convention of literature. And then I wonder why critics don't notice me or why (laughs) people don't write about how this is such an interesting form of literature. So in a way it's self-sabotage. I think in a more important way, it's a way of satisfying like a real impulse in me, which is to make something like the things that I love, but that I'm incapable of making um, sculpturally or artistically or manufacture by manufacture. Um, You know, I, I wish... I wish I were a jewelry maker. I wish I were a toy designer like Marvin Glass. I, I don't have any visual sense, so I create things that hopefully can pass for them or that give you a little bit of the charge that those things give people, namely kids. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I think you're really successful at that. I think you're, you're, you, you're, you have found an audience for your work. It's not like it's like totally unknown, and I think it's – you know, like you're in the right place. You're with the right company. Well, that's that's amazing. I'm really lucky, you know, because because part of the part of the beauty of the the things that I love, those objects I love, is that the makers are mostly anonymous. Now they're not anonymous to me. You know, I'll read a biography of C. Carrie Cloud, who created a lot of the Cracker Jack premiums. Right. Um, they're not considered artists. They're like they're draftsmen not. or yeah. something. Exactly. Or Marvin Glass, who made like the who made like the mousetrap game and a million games I love like operation, but, um, yeah, they're not, they're not considered artists and that's, that's not considered artistry. It's considered art when an artist comments on the commerciality of it, but I never want to do that in my books. My books are not supposed to be a comment on disposability or commercialism or, um, uh, consumerism. I mean, if anything, I have an, a, an abiding love of consumerism. 
and of manufacture and of the design of things that are meant to not last. So I'm really lucky that I have any readers at all, you know, and, um, and uh, yeah, I don't take it for granted. Uh, <laughs> uh, but at times, I must say that, you know, um, at times I love the feeling that someone might come across the book and, no, I don't know how to say that. Sometimes I'm drawn to the thought that anonymity is like the suitable way to live for someone who makes garbage like I do. Um, but on the other hand, no one, no, very few people can live with total anonymity, you know, or not getting appreciated. So I, I, I feel torn in those two directions. I would love to, uh, I would, you know, in a way, those things should be unsigned. In a way, Castle Faggot should be unsigned. But I'm too vain. <laughs> I know what you mean. I think you, you're, you're straddling this fine line between creating art that's drawing its inspiration from so many other sources that are not art related from, you know, like you said, consumerism, scat, kitsch, cereal, yeah. haunted houses, board games, amusement parks, gift shops and, and theaters. But I don't know. I feel like if you were to do this anonymous thing that you're you're talking about, it would almost necessitate you collaborating with somebody or taking your ideas and moving it into something craft based that's not literature. You know, I would love to do that. And, you know, I've been making jewelry for years and I'm thinking the next book might be like a folded piece of paper that comes in a box of jewelry. Um, but I don't, I don't have the confidence to show it to people and to, you know, I don't have the confidence to know for sure that's what I'm going to do. Um, and also, um, you know, the last couple of books, starting with The Well-Dressed Wound and then this one, I, I think that, the, you know, I, 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 I can't honestly say they're service literature. I can't obviously say they're promotional material because um, since I got really sick, since I got cancer, um, uh, there, it has infused the writing, I think, with a desperation and a kind of nakedness that I didn't have before. And obviously, no theme park wants to have that in their promotional literature. Um, uh, so while I say I want it to be anonymous and um, promotional, I'm in fact like putting tons of myself in there. And uh, I don't, you know, th that's weird now that I've said it, I've never really thought about it. Um, how much of myself I put in there and yet maintain in my brain that what I'm doing is um, something that anyone could do. Yeah, but I think you're in service to an atmosphere and it's one that only Derek can make. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's the joy of high fashion. That's the joy of writing this kind of literature. Yeah, thank you for saying that because um, I've been listening to a lot of your interviews and I, I and. I love how you talk about atmosphere and tone. In my mind, you know, I'm not the best reader of my work. And um, in my mind, when I write something successfully, it has no atmosphere. It's just like a Rube Goldberg contraption. It's a joke. It's a mousetrap game. Um, but in reality, it has tons of atmosphere. And that's atmosphere, you know, when you ask me about my Nana, or look, listen, how I went on, like, obviously, these things haunt me, I'm haunted like anyone else. And when I remember things that haunted me, the only thing I can do is produce a new hauntedness that 
for some reason makes, you know, relates back to them in my mind, but that um, hopefully envelops other people as well. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm constantly lying to myself when I write and publish, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's fine. You know, it, um, I don't have anything else to do. And, you know, the new books I think are, I think the new books, maybe I'll ask you, like, they're, they're death obsessed, are they not? Well, they are. And I guess this is kind of like one of my questions that I, I've really wondered about while reading Castle Faggot is that it's really structured like a parlor trick, which I think is part of this utilitarian aspect to your writing that you're really drawn to. And use the text as an actual part of the novel's architecture. Like at some point you have to flip it over and there's these like spaces that seem to be building something out. And there's also this nursery rhyme aspect to your prose that uses cruelty, repetition and cartoonish violence to conceal and reveal something very emotive. So I'm curious to know like what is the emotional center of this project? Like, where does it come from? Am I being to- – oh, can I just say as a side, am I boring the death out of you? I feel like no, I've been talking No, not at all. I'm, like, I'm okay. super – trust me. Okay. <laughs> I, would, I would be wrapping it up if I were okay. not interested. I have such a fear that I'm, like, terribly boring and I'm the last one to know it. Um, I mean, I, I think – and partially that feeling comes from, like, I rarely talk about my work. Like, this is such a privilege to talk about it. I, it's a privilege for me to hear about oh, it. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I put out books every couple of years, and I don't – you know, I, I get a little bit of press, but it's not like I'm on, like, some festival circuit talking about my work. So mostly – and my friends are so tired of me. I never talk about what I do. Although I'm going to say we're friends now. And you know what? Before I answer your question <laughs> – <laughs> I feel like I I was social media friend with you years. You're, were you friends with Blair Mastbaum? He's a really good friend of mine. Yeah, I just saw yeah. him last year in Berlin. Okay, I remember. I don't know him really. I remember corresponding with him on Facebook, and I remember you were a friend of his. And I remember thinking, "Oh, your work was so interesting," and also you were so good looking. Uh, um, <laughs> as is Blair. Yeah, Blair's a stud. Um, no, you are too. So, um, yeah. So when you wrote me, I was thrilled because I, I like Blair's work a lot and I, I don't actually have, like, I, I don't have any history with him at all, but I'm, I'm still friends with him on social media and hope he's doing well. He is. He's in, uh, Portugal right now. And yeah, Blair's a super talented writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he's a natural and, uh, and you too, you always seem like so cool. Um, okay. So I'm going to answer what is the emotional center of this? Um, I guess, you know, I guess shit is the emotional center. Um, Paul shit is an emotion, is it not? Am I right in saying that? I suppose that? it um, could be. Maybe the most natural emotion we have. <laughs> I guess there was a change in my writing. I started, uh, I wrote The Well-Dressed Wound and I published it. And then I started writing what I called Rue Do at the time, which was the last section of Castle Faggot, the novelization, the Rankin-Bass section. Um, and then I got this crazy kind of cancer. And then... I spent a couple of years dying and then I spent a couple of months coming back to life and, uh, it changed 
everything about me. It changed the way I live. It changed the way I think. It changed uh, what I wanted to do with the writing. And so I, I, I dropped Rudu Do, and I, I wrote um, The Well-Dressed Wound, which was uh, really a specific response to my surgery and my cancer. And, and I, I posed a you know, I, what I wanted to do was I thought I was going to die. You know, the, I was I was at the surgeons one day and they said, well, you know, you might die during this, these surgeries. What what would you like to do before that? And I said, well, I'd like to finish a book, which was surprised me that I said that because I never find it that fun writing books. And um, I think most people. I think they expected me to say, you know, go, you know, I don't know. <laughs> what do people do? Go to the do? Enchanted Forest. Yeah, well, I don't even know if they do that or if they well, go like hang gliding. I thought you would do. Go but, hang yeah. gliding or climb yeah, yeah, Everest yeah, yeah, yeah. or something like that. Um, and then The Well-Dressed Wound really became a book about if I'm going to die, you know, what what do I want heaven to look like? And I decided, well, I want heaven to look like a Margiela boutique. And um, it's all white and it's full of things I desire and I can have them. Um, and that led into the book being, um, I thought, well, if Margiela is dead and these are clothes for dead people, how does he show them? He shows them through seances. When spirits appear at seances, they're models. So basically every seance becomes a cat, a catwalk. And that amused me. And I finished the book and I lived and so then the surgeon would say, well, it, you know, the, it, everything went well. You might survive. What do you want to do with your life? And at that point, after the surgery, I, like, could barely walk. I shit myself constantly. I didn't have the energy to walk down the street. I didn't have the energy to open my eyes someday. So I thought, well, what kind of bucket list can I have basically between my couch and my toilet? <laughs> <laughs> Because these are the parameters of my bucket list, uh, the 10 feet to the bathroom. Um, and then I picked up uh, Rudy Do again, and it became Castle Faggot, and it really became a book about um, shitting. And uh, I know that sounds really flip or vulgar, but um, shitting uh, is the thing I do most in life. And it's uh, the thing, it's the center of my life. And it's the thing that dictates where I can go, what I can do, how much I can work. Fortunately, it's gotten better in the eight years since my surgery. And I'm, I can lead a little more normal life. But uh, yeah, it, I thought I'm going to pick this up. And it is going to be actually a book about crap. And I feel almost embarrassed saying that because books are supposed to, you know, interrogate questions or you wonder about memory or identity or gender or something. But um, I'm not like that. But it seems like by definition, by from everything you're telling me, your book is doing exactly those things. Yeah, it's 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 interrogating the very specific details of my life. I also had, you know. You don't want to know this. You didn't ask me this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. You know, the, the surgery I had was, um, you know, I, I had always thought I was a very ugly person. Like, I, I was an ugly kid, and I was an ugly adult, and um, I kind of hated myself. And then I got cancer and had these surgeries, and I realized, you know, 
my body hates me too. <laughs> and um, for the first time, my body and I were in league in our hatred of me. Um, and it changed my psyche. Uh, the, I'll, I'll describe the surgery because it's kind of grotesque. Um, I had an, a, I had a tumor in my appendix, which ruptured and it, it spread like a moss across my abdomen. And so for my final surgery, which was 18 hours long, um, they cut out half my organs and half my bowels. And then they stripped my abdomen of its lining. They cut out my lymphatic system. And then they had to scrub every organ by hand. And then at the end of that, they filled my abdomen with chemo solution, which they heated. And then they put in a motor so it swirled around. Wow. Bath. And um, then they sewed me up. And that led to weeks. I couldn't sleep for weeks. I had, I was delirious. I was hallucinating. Um, I had beetles crawling over me constantly. I had, but the thing I remember most was I had like a slideshow. I sat in the ICU and I watched a slideshow and it was all the things, it was everything about my body I loathed times a thousand. It was like me getting fucked by severed limbs. It was uh, jizzing maggots. It was, uh, it was like a presentation by someone telling me that uh, I was gone, my body was gone, um, that, that I, you know, that I was this, um, that I, I was nothing but disgustingness. And um, it was horrific. Is obviously like a traumatic reaction to having so many tubes in me and hands and chemo, but it was also really peaceful. Like I thought to myself, I, I from now on, if I write again, I can write about, like I'm sort of dead. Like I'm already dead. These books are going to be posthumous. Like I, no one can argue with the books I write now because you can't argue with a, a ghost, you know, um, and. That led to an enormous shift, I think, which uh, happened in the well-dressed wound and happened in this one, which is like a kind of um, no-holds-barred grotesqueness. So when I talk about wanting to write, wanting to write an object because I can't create it, I'm, I'm now I'm writing that slideshow. And I haven't managed to go far enough. You know, I'm not guillotin. <laughs> um, uh, I haven't managed to do that. And I'm, I still have like a very sickly sweet addiction for narrative, for stories, for, you know, as condensed as they are. Um, I still love them. So I can't let myself go loose formally. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm these, the... I always loved Serial, and when I started writing Rue Du Du, it was because I loved Count Chocula, and now I still do, uh, but this stuff is uh, toxic, you know? Um, there's a toxicity, uh, I hope, in what I'm doing, because there's a toxicity in me. Huh. In, in the well-dressed well wound, I think, you know, people wonder why I love fashion so much. And I realize, well, I love fashion because it, it, it destroys you. You know, I think you should wear head to toe designer. And I think you should be obliterated by the designer's vision. And um, I think that's like a direct, I think I'm understanding why I love a fashion because I got obliterated, you know, by medicine or can't. 
you know, when I had cancer, it was awful, but I also thought, oh, fuck, finally I'm like Maleficent. Like I have something so evil in me. How can I spew it out? How can I spew some of it out? It's like so evil. It's almost fabulous. It's so fabulous. I mean, it's like uh, my cancer is the most interesting part of me. And it's so grotesque. It's the kind of grotesque I always dreamed of. And then it was, and then it happened, uh, you know? And, um, and so the, this sickness has been, well, to quote Kathy Acker, like it's the gift of illness, to paraphrase Kathy Acker. It's been horrible, but it's been a gift too, writing-wise. How are you now? Is the cancer in remission? Are you healthy? Yeah, it's interesting. This cancer can get, um, the kind of cancer I have can get really angry when you treat it and come back really strong. Um, it didn't in my case. I'm eight years clean. Um, so there's a very good chance I was cured. The problem is that when they fill you up with chemo solution, you're going to get another kind of cancer. So now I'm on constant monitoring for liver cancer, kidney cancer, brain cancer, bowel cancer. Um, so one of those will kill me. But I, you know, I've lived eight years without it, so it's pretty miraculous. Um, I'm really grateful. I don't always feel grateful. You wouldn't know I was grateful most days when I talk to you, but um, I'm grateful. Man, that is just like such a fascinating backstory to hear to this book. <laughs> like, I'm just so happy that you shared that with me because I think it's easy to maybe see this work as as something um, transgressive and, and somewhat funny and based on your aesthetic and these objects but reading it I, I felt there was a sense of anger or a sense of resentment in there that felt very real and very visceral and I had yeah. no idea and hearing you talk about it and reading your words really feels like you designed this incantation or this exorcism that wanted to just rid yourself of these feelings. Like I know you're like embracing it and you're able to talk about it in a very like funny and, and humorous way, but it seems like you really like not only created a, a physical structure, but the words to go with it to shit this out for, for lack of better terms. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, thank you for saying that because, yeah, there, there's like viscera in there for sure. And, um, um, yeah, I'm trying to shit it out, but I'm also realizing that, like, you know, my shit is wearing me. Like, I'm just a conveyance for my shit at this point. My shit is – I'm getting old and diseased and my shit stays young. <laughs> um, so in a way, in a spiritualist terms, I've become like a vessel to convey the shit. But we're born into that vessel, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, we are. And it's just weird to let, I, I feel like it's a step for me to step aside and like let Jesus take the wheel, or in this case, like let the shit take the wheel. We are born in it, and it's very weird to confront. And um, I don't um, want to write, you know, yeah, I, I, I do want to design something that can hold the shit spray the shit, make you smell the shit. I have no delusions that I've gotten rid of it, you know, and I don't want to get rid of it. Uh, 
all these things are in a way magical that are happening to me. And, um, and yes, when you say invocation, I think that's correct. I don't, I can't get rid of it, but more important, I don't want to get rid of all that, all that shit. And, uh, in fact, I want to think about it more. And when I think about my earlier books and my affection for the discarded and the detritus of the world, I just, I feel like those earlier books were true. It's just that, that my aesthetic came and bit me on the ass, you know, like, um, I, I went through something like I, I, I found myself in a Derek McCormick story. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it wasn't entirely pleasant. It wasn't entirely pleasant, but it wasn't awful. I mean, it's not the worst thing. Oh, it might be the worst thing. I correct myself. But it also seems like the most pure evidence that you're on the right path, that you and your art have merged into something totally complete and crystal clear. I hope so. I really hope so. I hope, you know, I love to hear you say that because that's my sincerest hope. I always wanted to be an artist like the artists I love, you know, and um, they seem to be able to crystallize things. Crystallize is the perfect word, you know, and I was just reading about how, you know, if you leave outhouses long enough, the shit turns into crystals. And I thought that's so beautiful. I would mm. wear a necklace of that. Um, Likewise. But yeah. To, to <laughs> To reach that kind of condense or, you know, crystallization of compactness, of glitteriness, um, that's what I long to do. And the writers I love do that. And off the top of my head, who am I thinking of? Um, thinking of Janae. I'm thinking of Dennis, of course. I mean, Dennis is like... Daddy. Yeah. I mean, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and a lot of people talk about Dennis and it's endlessly satisfying to me because... Um, <laughs> it you really know, living is, in isn't Dennis, it? Living in Dennis's time is like living in Baudelaire. He's Baudelaire. He's Rambo. He's he's all the marshmallow or marshmallow. <laughs> he's the marshmallow he's prince. He's all those things together, you know. And um, he like has this blog that is, I think, for so many of us, just this this amazing resource that captures like this specific. Once again, this atmosphere that I think we're all gravitating towards, that we're all like, oh, wow, not only can we like be part of this thing, but we can watch it and like learn from yeah. it. It's 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 totally yeah. mind blowing. And it's it was, you know, it was so cool to see your post there not too long ago for for your latest book, Castle Faggot. So it really <laughs> seems like I think this this crystallized shit necklace you're dreaming about has <laughs> actually happened. And it's not only the thing you're wearing around your neck, but it's part of your decor. It's your fashion. It's the yeah. text in your book. And you've also created something that you can rub other people's nose in it. Yeah. Well, that's very, I mean, that's the highest compliment, you know, that I, that I wrote something that I can rub people's nose in. <laughs> That's what shit's for. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because when you, when I think about scat and the sexual element, I haven't addressed that at all because it doesn't exist for me. It's something else, but it's it's really prominent. And um, uh, but I agree with you about Dennis. I agree with you and all the things you say about Dennis. And uh, yeah, I'm, we're just lucky. I mean, I I've you know I've met tons of writers I love. Like I 
I was so sad when Kevin Killian passed and, um, I got to meet Kathy Acker a bunch of times before she passed. And, um, what was that like? She was very sweet. I mean, she's very intimidating because she looked so fucking cool. And she was wearing the Vivian Westwood, like, suit. I think I forget which time travel collections. So that it was had slits in it when she moved, the slits would open and her tattoos would show. It's like Vivian Westwood made it for her. Um, uh, I was quite young and naive and I name dropped in a way that I think didn't please her. You know, I, I name dropped people I knew that she might have been fighting with at the time. Um, and then there's a writer, I don't know if you know him, Tony Burgess, who lives in Canada, who's a horror writer who I think is like one of the greatest writers ever. And, um, what's his big uh, book called? His, but he had a book called Pontypool changes everything. Yeah. And he got made into a movie. Yeah. 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 I've read that. Um, Now he has, he has a book called Ravenna gets, which I edited, uh, which is a horror book about two small town towns going and going to war. And there's a story in it. Uh, about death, how death ping-pongs between people. And, um, I mean, I just think he's, like, a genius. I think he's a genius. And I have to mention him because um, uh, he's well-known for that movie. It's not that he doesn't have a readership, especially in horror circles, but, uh, you know, he's as great as a mind as I've ever met. As is my best friend, Jason McBride, who's writing the authorized Acker biography, which is out in 2022. So that uh, has been a blessing. He has done hundreds of interviews, and I know so much about Kathy Acker that I didn't know before. I forget why I got to this. I'm sorry, Paul. Oh, we were just talking about Dennis and the blog and oh, all yeah. the artists around it. And um, I, I've always had, I've always, you know, Dennis has always been super supportive, but I've always been aware that I didn't write. I didn't have the same set of interests, and this goes back to the Michael Silverblatt. You know, like I'm. I'm not interested in pornography, really. I'm not interested in um, drugs. Dennis is, although I think, as you know, and as many people know, you know, Dennis uses those as um, th- those are those are crystals set into a much larger piece of jewelry, if I can use that. You know, that mm-hmm. those are ways to access access ways of thinking and ways of uh, thinking outside and. Um, so, but I was worried. You know, I have quite quaint interests, Halloween. and. Um, but that's your bag of tricks. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's li- your literal and figurative bag of tricks. I wouldn't uh, yeah. put one above the other because if you had the same interests as Dennis, you might not be reading your work. So I think you're well, a totally you. original voice in that sense. So I wouldn't get tripped up on it. It's, it's weird for me, I guess, because I was um, – I just watched a documentary on Bruce LaBruce and, um, you know, I went to high school with all those kids and knew Bruce in grade 13. And, um, I loved that queer core scene that grew up, but I was not part of it. You know, I did mm-hmm. not, I did not share a sensibility, but I loved what they were doing. And, um, but that led to like a deep insecurity that I just wasn't cool. And then I don't think about that so much anymore, but when you're 18 or whatever, it crossed my mind. Right, right. <laughs> that these people were so out there, uh, you know, and I love Gloria G.B. Jones, and I still see her once in a while. And um, they were punching buttons, and they were big buttons. You know, they were buttons that, like, Republicans noticed and the media noticed, and I never did that. And so um, now part of that's fine because, you know, my dream for myself is always you know, has always been that kid in the rural town in costume jewelry that did not get noticed, that there's that, the lure of anonymity and then the lure of being noticed um, 
that I, I, you know, I, I tend, I don't ping, I don't go between them, but they play different roles in my psyche. But you know, I say this to you knowing that you grew up in Florida. What are your bag of tricks? That's what I want to know. <laughs> my bag of tricks right now is a, is a, a healthy dose of self-loathing. And, you know, uh, honestly, like, I don't know what my bag of tricks are right now. Uh, part of me starting this this podcast, I think, has been me trying to figure out what that is. Because I think I got really... You know, after my book came out, I got really consumed with just like, fuck, I put all my eggs into that basket. You know, I was like, I want to be a writer so bad. Like, this is my dream. And and it happened. And and I'm so grateful for it. But it didn't change my life in the way that I thought it would or in the way that I maybe dreamt or fantasized or fooled myself into thinking it would. And since then, it's I've really put all my my focus into getting a job and trying to like clear my head out and kind of changing myself and and trying to, to to become more clear and I think the thing that I like most in art and the thing that I that resonates with me the most is tone atmosphere and style and I just was like and I love podcasts I love audio I love the audio format so I was like, man, I would love to do something in audio one day. I don't know what that is. How do I start? Everything felt just so insurmountable and and just, you know, like you just are like like starting a new book and you're like, oh, what should this be about? Should I plot this thing out? It's the hardest step is just picking up the pen and, and starting. It doesn't really matter what you do is good or bad. And you know, as I started doing this, I started just meeting so many people that were doing all this amazing work, which is crazy because it seems like, you know, everybody says, oh, the book is dead and nobody reads. But I can't think of a time in my life where there's been so many amazing books come out in just one year. And there's all these yeah. boutique indie publishing presses that are putting them out. So I feel very like invigorated by that and very inspired by that. And I'm just following this path to see where it goes. So I think this is my bag of tricks for the time being. Um, I mean, I will say, yeah, I mean, I've worked at bookstores. I've worked at two bookstores for the last 25 years, indie bookstores, and the book is dead and reading is dead shit is so preposterous. And that's largely to down to Americans. I mean, you Americans, you have so much fucking spunk about, startup publishing yeah and um there isn't a day on instagram or facebook that i don't think i could spend two hundred dollars ordering books you know from places that i've never heard of before and um i love that it's amazing it's it's so cool yeah and it's in direct contrast to canada where it's so fucking boring here and it's um worse than boring it's dumb you know, the, it's the well, reign of the dumb. We have our own dumb problem right now, too. <laughs> but I mean, we, but, but you know, that it, what, it, what bothers me in Canada is like the stuff that's sold to us as cool and edgy is dumb. And it's, it, you know, it gets grants and it gets prizes and it gets recognition, it gets on the radio and it has absolutely none of that fire that I've always loved about American art you know and that goes from like kenneth anger to dennis to kathy to 
everything. You know, I'm, I'm all I'm I'm always like in my mind, I've made myself an honorary American artist because to call yourself a Canadian artist, it's like you might as well just like climb down into an outhouse and let people shit on you all day. <laughs> <laughs> which you know some people get off on that's fine but i want to do it and um i know what you mean but there's just like i think i don't know it's it's so hard for me to say because like i think in america we look at canadians right now as so much better than us like you guys yeah. have your shit figured out your politics aren't terrible you don't have these public executions carried yeah. out by police you know i think to be an american right now if you're conscious and aware is to like live in a constant state of, of sorrow, shock and anger. And I think maybe that produces some, some great art, but on a day-to-day level, it's kind of shitty here, man. Oh no, I, I feel terrible. I think you're right. I mean, in my case, I mean, I think about our healthcare system, which I know Republicans love to decry and um, pick apart, but I myself have gotten millions of dollars of free treatment and I help take care of my dad who has dementia and he's in the hospital now and um, he's getting amazing care. Um, the, the, the problem with Canada is that the literary arts have become an arm of universal health care. I mean, they're there to be writers are there to be guidance counselors and nurses. So, yeah, that states is fucked up. The states is really fucked up. And I remember the 80s, you know, I remember, you know, um, Wojnarowicz and uh, the, you know, the trouble with the NEA and, um, uh, but still, you people have fire, you know, you people have fire in your souls. Uh, and, you know, I love the French too. I, I just was just looking yeah. at the site for After Eight Books and, um, you know, you got to hand it to this closet-sized bookstore in Paris that has... This fucking great, I mean, you could go in there and just buy at random and be interested, yeah, you know? It's beautiful. Um, uh, it's a beautiful thing. And, um, but I'm going to ask you because I'm, I, I know I'm boring you and taking a lot, or I'm taking a lot of your time for sure. But what, like, what are your daydreams? What happens next for you? Like, first of all, I think that this podcast, if this is the first podcast I've been able to listen to, <laughs> thank um, you. And I called Semutex that I was going to do it, and I said you were like the death metal Michael Silverblatt, which is true. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank and they you. thought, wow, that sounds amazing. And um, <laughs> I listened to the Wayne Kestenbaum episode with a smile on my face because everything is so sensual for Wayne, and it's like I'm the opposite of Wayne. Everything is like a getting a fucking needle to draw blood whereas writing and language is concerned. Um, oh, but I think you're incredibly sensual in the way that you think about yourself, your body, and how it relates to your work. Well, I just hate my body and I hate literature in the same way. And I never get hate off of Wayne Kestenbaum, you know? You know, that said, I guess the engagement is the same. But what, what else do you daydream of? Like, are you going to write again? Are you going to, are you hoping this expands? Are you, do you dream of making movies? My, my plan for now is to get a new job. Um, but otherwise, as far as creativity goes, I would like to expand this show into something bigger. There's a, sh there's a podcast called Into the Zone, and it's about borders and how, I don't know, opposites from, each sides of the border relate to each other. And I'd like to do something like that. So for any listeners out there that have 
audio engineering or production skills, feel free to email me at wakeislandbroadcast at gmail.com. So yeah, like in the future, I'd like to do something more involved with the podcast and still, but still be centered around tone and atmosphere. Basically, I would like to do Dennis Cooper's blog, but as a podcast and really take full <laughs> advantage of the audio format, which is one that I love. And I think it's very intimate and immediate. It's interesting you say that because the thing I don't like about podcasts is that the tone and atmosphere are immediate and they're always often the same from podcast to podcast. And, and what's amazing about you is that you're, uh, you're setting it you're setting the tone. I mean, you're a podcast about atmosphere that is cognizant of its atmosphere. So that's amazing to me. Well, thank you. You don't often get that like self-awareness in podcasts about the way their voice sounds, the way that other voices sound, the way that it unfolds. So congrats. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much. And, you know, to sign off, I don't know if you'd be down for yeah. this, but I heard you on another podcast sing a Christmas song. I wonder if you <laughs> can uh, do that for the listeners of Wake Island as well. Okay. Well, Wake Island, I'm, um, I, had, I had half an Ambien and then I just had a bunch of whiskey. Oh, so I'm, even better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a Judy Garland song because I'm feeling right now that I'm as close to Judy Garland as I'm ever going to get. Perfect. So, okay, I will sing a Christmas carol. I'm going to sing the Judy Garland's great Christmas song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Uh, but I'm going to sing the lyrics that were not recorded because they were too depressing, and I hope I remember these correctly. Okay. <clears throat> oh, Paul, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Have yourselves a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year we may all be living in the past. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Pop that champagne cork. Next year we may all be living in New York. No good times as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us no more. At least we all will be together. If the Lord allows, until then we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas now.